Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hi, I'm Jody Collins. I'm the host of Founders in Asia, uh, where we speak with entrepreneurs who've started and are running companies across Asia. Today, I'm really excited to have someone join us who wears many hats. Ryan Pyle, the founder and CEO of Ryan Pyle Productions, is an adventurer, an explorer, a TV host, an author, a speaker, uh, lots and lots of different things. And so I'm really excited to have Ryan join today. So welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Great, great. So look, what we normally do whenever uh, we have a guest on Founders in Asia, we start first of all with understanding a bit about your backstory before we get into what it is that you do. Uh, so maybe if you can just tell us a little bit about your background, how you've ended up in Shanghai where you are today, and, uh, and then we can talk a little bit about what your business and what you're doing. Okay, well, the backstory is quite interesting. I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada, and uh, and I was heavily involved in sports and athletics uh, from a very young age. I played basketball, and uh, as anyone who plays sports at a high level will tell you, uh, you don't always grow up uh, as a very well-rounded person. You know, <laughs> right. you don't, you don't, you know, you don't. You don't learn how to, you don't, you don't read enough books. You don't uh, learn how to play musical instruments. You don't have interests that are outside of your sports because in many cases you're, you're training three, four hours a day, um, seven days a week or at least six days a week. So I kind of got caught up in this, this life from the age of eight to the age of 22. Um, where I was like living, um, you know, sleeping, you know, dreaming basketball and, um, and then a funny thing happened in my second year of university at the University of Toronto. Um, I needed to have my Fridays off because when you played basketball, we always uh, traveled on Fridays, played on Fridays, played on Saturdays, and then came back on Sundays. That was our little weekend routine. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to have my Fridays off. So in order to have my Fridays off, I needed to take a class like Thursday, 2 p.m. And that, and I could, I would have just, I was going to take any class that was Thursday, 2 p.m. That was the only slot I had. And it ended up being an introduction to modern China. Oh, right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Being interested in China or being interested in Asia had never come up um, prior to that moment. And that was in my second year of university. And what year was and that? That would have been, wow, um, that would have been like 97 or 98. Right, right, okay. I'm just thinking in terms yeah. of introduction to modern China, what would have been covered at that stage as well? Actually, it was pretty early stages in terms of China still opening up at that time. Yeah, it would have been. I think the the course started um, with kind of the end of the emperor um, and the kind of birth of the republic and then uh, the transition right. into co- into communism. Yeah. So it was kind of like maybe from the 1850s or 1880s onwards. And um, anyways, and then that was kind of the first time I realized that there's a whole, you know, there's a whole new world out there, uh, which, which is a strange thing to say, but you know, you do get kind of caught up in these bubbles and I was very much, you know, in a bubble. Um, and then I took a few more classes on China and Asia and, and, uh, and then eventually when I finished my basketball career, which, which, uh, which is when I finished university, I wasn't able to play professional. I, um, I said, you know what, like I've taken a couple classes about China, like I need to go to China. Like mm-hmm. if I'm going to stay in Toronto and work at a bank or yep. maybe go to law school or whatever, the least I can do is just go visit China. Yep. Um, so in 2001, I planned a 
a 90-day trip all around China by myself. So I flew into Hong Kong, went to Shenzhen, then Guangzhou, and then I went up through Changsha, which is in Hunan province, and then I went along the the Yangtze River. I saw the Three Gorges Dam, um, went to Nanjing, Suzhou, Shanghai. I loved Shanghai, mm. uh, which is important because when I came back to China, I decided to live in, in Shanghai. And then from Shanghai, I went up to um, Taishan, cl- climbed Taishan, which is in Shandong province, beautiful mountain. Wow. Then I went up to Beijing, and then I went all the way from Beijing west to the border of um, China and Pakistan on the Karakom Highway, and I saw the beautiful 7,000-meter peak, Musta Agata, which is right on the border of Pakistan. And then I went down into Tibet and went to Lhasa, and went and I trekked to Mount Everest Base Camp, went to Chengdu, saw the pandas, came back out through Shenzhen, back to Hong Kong. 90 days, all public transport, did a lot of hitchhiking in Xinjiang and Tibet. Fantastic. Um, Do you speak any Chinese? Was, I didn't at the time. Right. Um, my, my Chinese is a little better now, but still weak. Um, and But this 90-day trip around China changed my life because it was the first time in my life that I wasn't playing basketball. It was the first time in my life that I wasn't on a schedule, you know, someone else's schedule, essentially. Um, And it was the first time in my life I didn't have 12 guys around me, you know, all trying to be macho, full of testosterone. (laughs) And, and, uh, And it was crazy. So... And I loved it, and 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 I started writing and taking pictures every day, and and I was like writing emails, like you have to back in the day, you know, yeah, I didn't have a mobile yeah. phone, yeah. you had to go to it, you had to like find the internet cafe in the city, which was like never nearby, and then you had to go to the internet cafe, and then I would write these long emails to friends and families about all the crazy stuff I was seeing, and I, yeah. and I really felt like it was um, an exciting time in China, and and definitely an exciting time in my life, mm. and. And then after my 90-day trip, I went home for Christmas. Mm. I left in September 2001, right, uh, just right after the, the September 11 uh, attacks in New York City. I left like a week after that. And then I came back um, like the first or second week of December. And then I had Christmas with my whole family, and I basically told them I'm moving to China. And then September wow. 2000, uh, j- sorry, January 2002, uh, I ended up moving back to Shanghai. Right, right. Fantastic. That, that is so interesting, actually, that you must have gotten to China just before I got there. And actually, I had quite a similar experience in some ways, but not nearly as adventurous as what you mentioned. I landed in Yunnan province on my own in 2003 and to study Chinese. And I did the same thing. I did the public transport local travel. And, you know, even without the Chinese, I just, I, you know, being able to speak Chinese, I had the most incredible experience because the Chinese people were so, so welcoming and friendly and helpful. And is that what you found as well on your travels? Absolutely. Um, you know, it was just a, an amazing experience. And, um, and uh, like I said, you know, life altering, because up until that point, I, I just felt like, you know, I might go into banking, uh, right. which is what my what yep. my father had done. And then all of a sudden, like, I was like, my God, I, I like writing. And I like taking pictures and I want to tell like stories of other people. And, and then, you know, I started trying to figure out if I can like make a career out of that. And, um, and that really kind of opened my eyes to a world outside of Canada. Um, and then trying to find alternative career paths. And so then how did you end up? Let's, let's then actually, if you can tell us a, a bit about what you do now, what your business is, so then we can make that connection between the two. I'd love to hear about what you do now and then how you actually got there. 
Um, so what I do now is basically, um, you know, I, I'm, I produce uh, and direct and present my own television shows. Mm. Right. And uh, so what I do is I come up with some, you know, interesting ideas and concepts, um, put a crew together, we go out, we film them, um, edit them, put them all together, and then um, sell them to people like BBC Earth, um, Discovery Channel, uh, or Travel Channel. Yeah. And how that kind of came about was um, as I, you know, as I came back to China in 2002, mm. I started uh, writing and and doing photography, and then I worked my way into uh, working with people like the New York Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek, Forbes, Fortune, all these um, big American publications, and I was really kind of on the journalist track um, with my photography and storytelling, mm. which was great, but um, but after after you know five six or what was it like nine years of that. Um, it got, it got a bit tiring and I, I wanted to tell kind of more uplifting stories or, or try to inspire people a little bit more. Um, and mm. so in 2010, I, I tried to start making, um, adventure television and, and part of this transition from, you know, print photography to digital television or, or linear television, traditional television mm. was because in 2008, we had the Lehman's brothers collapse. We had the U S financial crisis. And this just completely killed the publishing industry. So, you know, I went from 2007 working every week for Time, Newsweek, Forbes, Fortune, New York Times, uh, and making a very good living to 2009 after the financial crisis to, to going like five, six, seven weeks straight without work. Right, right. Yeah. And, I, and I was like, wow, I need to change my, you know, my method of storytelling if I want to have a career uh, in this. So then I moved into television production, which is what I still do today. Right, right. And so, yeah, pretty, pretty gutsy move then. So uh, when you came back from China, you're, you're back home, you're thinking then about, okay, uh, do I still do this career in banking or do I follow my passion? Uh, how hard was it for you to sort of think, okay, I'm going to give this a go and I'm going to follow this? And how did you get started with that? What was sort of the first opportunity? Did you just start writing and contributing for a couple of people first of all and it grew from there or did you have a, a plan in place? I think um, the, the the trick to kind of leaving Canada was, was embracing the unknown. Um, you know, I kind of knew I wanted to write and take pictures, but I didn't know even how I was going to do that. But I knew that you know, I could go to China at the age of 22 or 23 uh, and just make mistakes, and it wouldn't mm. be the end of mm. my. It wouldn't be the end of my world, and um, and I can't tell you like how glad I I, wa- I was that I did that because you know making mistakes at 22, 23 uh, is way easier than making mistakes at 32, <laughs> 33, or 42, 43. So yeah, so great, it was it was it was nice and. Um, so what I did was, and, and you know, China at that time, it, it was it was pretty low risk because the living costs were very reasonable. Absolutely. So, yeah. so you know, I came here to Shanghai and I taught some English part time, mm-hmm. uh, which paid my rent. And then I started working for um, local English magazines and newspapers, of which there were many. Uh, and I started writing and taking pictures locally in Shanghai. And then I started writing and taking pictures and doing travel stories all around China. And then, um, 
And then from the local magazines, which, you know, didn't pay great, I got into working for airline magazines and regional newspapers and magazines like the South China Morning Post or in Hong Kong or something like that, or the, uh, you know, the Cathay Pacific or the Singapore Airlines, you know, in-flight magazines. And then from there, I got into the New York Times, Time, Newsweek, Forbes, Fortune, um, and that was kind of how that all transitioned over, you know, between 2002 and 2010. Right. And then, so how does it transition from, you know, where you start out as a, a freelancer, you're, you're a contributor, you're really, you've, you've got yourself to worry about and that's sort of it, to then building it into a, a, a production company where you have uh, a number of people working for you. What's that transition like? That was a significant transition because, you know, when you're a freelance contributor, um, you're pretty much just worrying about yourself. So, you know, you're, you you got to go out and make your story. Uh, you've got to meet people. You've got to, you know, make sure you cover all the angles and then you've got to come back and write it, um, you know, and then deliver it. And, and, and then you get, you know, you get paid and that's, you know, you pretty much only have to worry about yourself. But television production is just a totally different beast. I mean, you know, we have a pre-production phase where we have to do all the planning. Uh, you've got to reach out to all the countries and all the local fixers that you want to work with and make sure all the permits are in place. So we, we make eight episodes a year. So I'm dealing with eight different fixers in eight different countries with eight different rules and regulations right, yeah. for filming permissions and journalism permissions. And then... Um, you know, at the same time, I'm dealing with my production team, which is myself and my camera guys. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on their schedules, you know, their air tickets, their visas, um, making sure our gear is, you know, clean and fixed and ready to go. And then, and then the post-production team, which is, you know, the, the editing, the music composition, the coloring, the sound mixing, the maps and graphics. Mm. And we're putting all these together um, as well. And, you know, at any one time you're dealing with a team of, you know, between five and 10, sometimes 15, um, you know, partners to help you make these television shows. And and because I'm quite small and because I'm quite Mm. niche in what I do, most of my most of my team are freelance contributors, but but they'll work with me for 12 months straight. Um, right. Yeah. But, but, uh, but then they'll, you know, they'll go off and do their own projects for four or six months and then they'll come back and work with me for 12 months straight again. So they, they're able to work with me on my production cycles. So I don't have, you know, a massive office with 20 people on yeah. full-time staff, but, yeah. but at any time I'm working with, you know, 10 to 15 people who are based all around the world. Yeah. Yeah. So you're managing a, a large team remotely and then you've got the added, uh, uh, I'm not sure if complication is the right word, but certainly some complexity around managing a team of people who uh, are themselves freelancers and managing their own uh, businesses as well, if you like. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and, and, and managing you, all that schedules and traveling like 300 days a year. So I'm always in a different time zone and I'm always right. jet lagged and, and a little cranky. <laughs> right, okay. Well, and you say you split your time between LA and Shanghai, is that right? Uh, yes, and yep. more frequently now in the Middle East as well. So, uh, ah, right, right, yep. yeah, yeah. And then, of course, wherever I'm filming one of the episodes that we are, I'm usually on the ground in that country for anywhere from ten to fourteen days. Yeah, and so then I imagine then so this this group of people that you have established a relationship with, working around the world, must be absolutely critical to you actually being able to deliver your product. How do you meet them? How do you find them? How do you build these relationships with them? You know, it, it's funny. Um, when I was young and in Shanghai, um, most of the people I met 
you know, in those transformative years in my kind of late twenties and early thirties, when I started to get a little bit more focused about what kind of business I wanted to run and what kind of stories I wanted to tell, Mm. um, I still work with these people. So, you know, uh, my director of photography who has worked with me on every project since 2010, his name is Chad Ingram. He's, um, and I met him in Shanghai and he's a Canadian. Um, and he, at that time he was a still photographer and I was a still photographer and, uh, and, you know, we said, hey, you know, maybe we should try to make a television show. And he had never used a video camera at that time. But we both thought like, hey, we should give it a try. And we did. And it's been, you know, a great eight year partnership. Um, and my editor, who I work with mainly now, his name's David Harris. Oh, by the way, Chad now lives in Montreal, Canada. He left Shanghai. So okay. now I work with him, even though he still moved back to Canada. Now I also work with David Harris, who's my post-production supervisor and editor. Mm-hmm. And he was based in Shanghai. And I met him over drinks one night at a friend's house. And then next thing you know, you know, we've been working together for five years. And, uh, and he used to live in Shanghai, but now he lives uh, just outside Wellington in New Zealand, which is where he's from. So I've met most of my team in China at various stages in their lives. Um, and maybe if they've gone home, I've continued the working relationship. Yeah, right. And I, I imagine, you know, certainly we've seen a trend and this is absolutely in marketing and advertising in, in my field, in technology. Uh, you know, this this move towards people wanting greater self-determination over their work, how they work, who they work with, uh, when and where they work, uh, is actually a boon for people uh, like yourselves and certainly like me as well, running a small business where I need a network of really solid freelancers to be able to tap in for specialist expertise on different projects. You know, I, I just see this continuing to grow. Uh, you know, there's, there's this real trend. And, you know, we hear a lot about the gig economy and people wanting to, uh, you know, move out of or needing to move out of their roles because of downsizing large corporations. And then it means that you've got more people in market who are looking to operate in their own way. It actually, uh, you know, from my perspective, I've found it's been really, really helpful. And there are a lot of people who are keen to work in the way that, you know, you're working and, and your, your network as well. So yeah, yeah, and you know, there's so much software available now, and communications, you know, um, software that's available now to to allow people to have large teams in multiple locations all around the world. Like we use this. Um, like I'm not plugging it, and I'm not no, connected do, with them in any way. Actually, I do ask these questions about what types of productivity tools you're using in order to run a remote team, particularly. So we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so I use Basecamp. Um, Basecamp is this kind of uh, online, you know, management system for your staff and all the different projects that you have on at any given time. And and you know, you know, you can set up like thirty different projects, and you know, you have different staff on different projects, and everyone can like sign in and let everyone know what what their progress is, and you can set dates for all these different, um, you know, um, key key kind of work streams. You know, work yeah. streams that yeah. need to be fulfilled and and it's a great way to keep everyone connected and then you know accounting wise we we use um zero which is an online based accounting software which mm. allows everyone to upload their own um you know invoices and upload their own expenses and and you know it connects directly to your bank account it connects directly to your credit card so you know you don't need to hire a full-time accountant um yeah yeah actually uh, yeah. stuff like that just saves so much time and energy Oh, completely, completely. And the tools just keep getting better. I, I, I actually had the privilege to interview the the COO of uh, of Zero recently, and I, I just, you know, I felt like a bit of a fangirl actually because I also use it. And you know, thank God there are 
there are platforms like that that can actually just make it so much easier to start a business and then to scale up because you're not spending all, all of your time doing work that distracts you from the work that you want to be doing. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing worse than wanting to climb mountains and film yeah. all around the world and then getting <laughs> caught up looking at Excel spreadsheets until midnight, you know, drinking single malt whiskey, wondering where it all went wrong, yeah. which has been, you know, has happened in the past. Yeah. And look, that's certainly the challenge. And actually, one of the questions that I ask the different founders that I'm interviewing is, you know, when things get tough, how do you stay motivated? Uh, I mean, in your instance, from an outsider's perspective, what you do just looks incredible. And it looks like you live this dream life of being able to do all these super exciting things that, you know, we we would all love to have the time and, uh, and energy to do more of. Uh, so I don't know if you have those same sort of challenges, but I'm sure there there must be challenges that come across uh, your path. How do you how do you keep going? How do you keep motivated? I really, um, when it comes to these kinds of challenges, I really fall back on my sports career. Um, you know, like, yeah, I had to practice six days a week, whether I was healthy or not, whether I felt motivated or not, you know, whether I was into it or not. And, and I absolutely 100% bring this kind of mentality to the paperwork I need to do, um, the field production, the climbing, the trekking, the filming, you know, everything I do, I bring this, you know, my, this sports mentality of, you know, we have a practice today from four to six, whether you like it or not, and you got to go out and give it 100%. And and um, I, tr- I find myself, you know, not feeling down or, or unmotivated at all because I just try to think less. You know, I just kind of focus on the tasks that need to get done and I just push through them and try not to, you know, get sidetracked by, you know, different feelings or emotions that may not help the situation at all. Um, yeah, right. And That's just try to focus on execution uh, instead of, you know, how we all might feel about it. And I think it's funny, you know, t- mm. in today's world, everyone's very touchy feely. Mm. And I don't say that in a negative way, but, you know, but. Back in the day, I mean, um, you know, you just had to get stuff done whether you were in in tears that day or not. And I guess I'm kind of from that old school where, you know, you just if it, if it means sitting down and cranking through it for 14 hours, then that's just kind of what has to be done. And um, and you just do it and then move on to whatever's next. And the feeling to be able to process and get through all that stuff is is unbelievable. Um, yeah, and yeah. I really enjoy those challenges. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, I, I love that uh, analogy of. You know, it's similar to your, your basketball uh, practice and the the need for discipline. Uh, I think I think you're absolutely right, actually. And you know, I've certainly been guilty of it myself sometimes, maybe overthinking things rather than just getting started. But I think you're right. There are just you know, particularly when you are the you're the founder, you're the CEO, you're the you're the talent as well. You need to do all of those aspects in the business, and so you just need to get out and do it, don't you? You do, and 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 you also have to lead by example. And and even though that you're working with people remotely, you know when someone asks you to review something, and they can see that you're working at midnight or you're mm. working at five thirty in the morning, um, you know it, it, it's like wow, this guy's in charge, and Jesus, look how hard he's working. And yeah, and I do that. I do that because I like it, but I also do it because I know it sets an example for the kind of people I want to work with. And this is, you know, this, right. this is, again, this is sports leadership, you know, who's going to dive down on the ball and, you know, and, and protect it, you know, for in a rugby match or a basketball game or whatever. Um, 
you know, in order to get everyone pumped up and, and, you know, get the crowd cheering. And, you know, this is what you have to do on a daily basis. If you're in, if you're in charge and you've got 10 people looking to you for motivation, um, you have to bring some excitement and you have to bring some discipline and you have to bring, you know, some work ethic and hopefully that people will jump on board to what you're trying to sell them, which is, you know, an interesting career and, and a chance to make content that's different and, and wonderful, um, mm. which, mm. which is what I'm trying to do. So, you know, leading from example, keeping people motivated, not falling behind, uh, because if something's sitting for three or four days and, you know, that, then that, then that freelance staff is also sitting for three or four days and the faster yeah. you can get back to them, the faster they can keep moving. And the more they're moving, the more their, you know, creative juices are going to be flowing and you're going to get better work from them. And, you know, I'm thinking about these things all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I was going to ask actually how you keep that motivation when running a team in such remote locations across so many different markets. Uh, I think you're right. That leading by example is is really interesting, and and certainly one of the things that I've found in in, in a number of people that I've been interviewing as well. Your role as leader is absolutely not just to do the work. It's it's about bringing the energy levels. It's about you know stepping into it each day and getting the team excited about what they're doing. Is, is, I, I think that's crucial. Yeah. Yeah. It okay. Is. Okay. Great. So, what I'd love to hear a bit more about the commercial aspect of the business, particularly as you balance it with the creative side. You know, you, what you do is so incredibly creative. You know, developing stories, uh, shooting them, filming, go out, going out there, and and you know, actually creating this beautiful product. Uh, what about the commercial side of things? How do you manage that? How are you actually going out there and uh, working with partners? to sell your programs, uh, to distribute your content? How, do, how does that work? Okay, well, um, I originally started off with my, this. Uh, I'll give you the story of my first television show and then yeah. we can see how things have progressed. So in 2010, um, my career was suffering from the financial crisis because uh, I was still a photographer at that stage. And I was also really tired of the kind of mainstream journalism that was reporting on China. And I was part of that, right? And I felt like it was overly negative and it was very repetitive. Mm. So I said, I said to myself, look, I'm going to make my first television show and it's going to be about China because I know China. I've been living here since 2002 and I've been traveling here for you know, almost 10 years. I've seen the whole country. I've reported on the whole country and I'm going to make my first TV show, but I want to show people my China which is different than the China you see on the BBC and the CNN and, you know, Fox News or whatever, you know, yeah. wherever you get your news. So I was going to ride a motorcycle the whole way around China. Um, it was going to be like 19,000 kilometers. We were going to do it in 60 days. And I was going to show people all of the amazing diversity and landscapes and, and minority peoples and religions that exist within China. Mm. Um, because this has always amazed me is just how large and diverse China is. And, you know, so then I, I wrote up a proposal and I contacted, you know, all of the, you know, the regular broadcasters of the time that would maybe take a show like this. And of course, all of them said no. Right. And then I, and then I reached out to, you know, a big motorcycle companies, you know, all around the world and said, hey, will you sponsor me? I'm going to do this thing. And then I say, well, you don't have a broadcaster. And I was like, well, I don't have a corporate partner either. So everyone said no again. Um, and then I, and then I just, I just kind of went for it. Um, I scraped together some of my own money uh, and just said, you know what, like this is going to be where I take a stand and develop my own new path. 
And if that ends up costing me, you know, like $50,000 or, or whatever to try to, to develop this on my own, then so be it. And I just kind of, I, I saw that investment as something instead of going back to business school or mm. instead of going, going, you know, to law school, I was going to, yeah. you know, take a tuition fee size money and figure out how to make television. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, can I, I, I completely agree with you on that. And actually I have a very good friend who started up her own business and she put, she put about a hundred grand into it and she said, you know what, this is my MBA. And actually, yeah. you know, that it's, you learn from experience, don't you? So yeah, I completely get what you're saying. Sorry. I've never been, uh, I've never been someone who learns from other people being like talked down to or, mm. or someone who's learned from books. But when you put your own money into a company bank account and then you start to see that daily total drop every day, <laughs> right. nothing, nothing on this planet is more motivating for you to figure out how to get shit done yeah, than, yeah. than that. And uh, so, yeah, in many ways that, that puts the pressure on. And when you're under pressure, that's when things happen. So um, so I, you know, I self-funded my first show and, and we ended up finishing it and working with a few different people who helped us out along the way. Mm-hmm. And we got it onto Travel Channel and it ended up being a success and we made our money back. Um, and then when I went out to do the next one, we had a broadcaster, we had a corporate partner, um, we had, we got money up front, like, which was like a dream. I was like, oh my right. God, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I didn't have to put in my own money this time. Wow. This is like a business. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, and then, does, yeah. And then does we, that come with, uh, come with expectations as well though, then I imagine that. So you must've had a lot of freedom on that first show because it's your idea. It's your money. You're you're doing it all. Then all of a sudden, you've got a corporate partner who's funding you. Does well, this it- is the thing. This is the thing. If you can, if you can establish your own following, and if you can establish your mm. own built-in audience, then the corporate partners should be smart enough to know not to mess with what is happening because what's happening is building his own audience mm. and his own and his own built-in you know, followers. And if you take, if you, if I went in a different direction, I'd lose them all. And then you'd be paying for nothing. So, so because I had done the first one and I had built this audience and built these followers, they're like, okay, here's some money. Just do what you did last time. And I was Mm -hmm. like, perfect. That's exactly what I want to do. So then it worked out. And then I did a third one on top of that. So I did Tough Rides China, which was my 65-day motorcycle trip around China, which is a six-part series on Travel Channel. Mm -hmm. And then I did Tough Rides India, which was a six-part series on on Travel Channel again. And then I did Tough Rides Brazil, which was another six-part television show. And those were my motorcycle adventures, which kind of took me around the world. And we worked with a a number of different corporate partners, you know, a motorcycle partner, a helmet partner. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. At one stage, we worked with a computer company, you know, and they were all just people who wanted to join on the ride and, and be able to use my experiences and my pictures for their own, you know, social media promotion or their own branding, um, storytelling experiences. And, and that was great. And, um, and then from that, I, I kind of rolled that into, doing this new series called Extreme Treks where I travel to eight different countries all around the world climbing mountains and mm. and uh, trekking across deserts and stuff like that because I wanted to kind of get away from the motorcycle experience because actually I, I really love being out in nature and walking and climbing and, and doing that. So again, I kind of had to invest some of the royalties that I had from the first few shows and, and, and then again kind of reinvent another series mm. uh, from scratch. And then once I did it and people can see how it looks, then you, of course you've taken all the risk away for most people. 
then um, then they'll come in and start to fund it. So we had some funding for season two, and now we've just wrapped season three, and now I'm preparing to raise some funds for season four, which will start next year. Right, right. And then I imagine once you've got that product, it's you've already proven an audience, then then it just must get easier from there. You've no doubt established relationships with the the big TV distributors as well. So then- it it does get it does get easier. But I'll tell you, um, one of the funny things is, and I don't. I don't define myself as like um, a disruptor in mm-hmm. any way, shape, or form. But, but the television and entertainment industry is very unique because, or maybe it's not unique, but it's very interesting in a way that um, all the jobs are compartmentalized. So this is the person who does the directing. Mm-hmm. This is the person who does the producing. This is the person who writes. This is the person who talks on camera. And what the industry doesn't know how to deal with is someone who does all of those things at the same time, which is what I do. Um, right, and, right. And actually, a lot of people see this as a negative because they think that maybe, oh, he can't do all those things at once. The The final product's not going to look as good. Oh, he doesn't spend as much as the other people do. Um, mm, man, that must, mm. you know, that must, that must mean he's not going to be able to get it done or he's not spending, you know, the right amount. And, and actually, you know, we, you know, we've, People have told us our television shows that we're making, you know, in 4K now are are very high quality, and, and we do it on a on a small team on a on a on a reasonable budget, and and I like having a say in in how it all looks and comes together because because you know when you create a franchise like that motorcycle show or this trekking show that I do now, when you when you invest your own funds in making that idea come to life. Mm. Um, you can't just kind of hand that over to someone else because you know you the DNA of that whole show or that whole experience is whatever's in your brain. Um, Absolutely, and, and it's your name and, on it as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I I met someone really interesting the other day who was telling me about an experience that had working with Stella McCartney, the fashion designer in the UK, and they were they were saying how she was. She was tough to work with, very tough to work with because she was very insistent on on ensuring that everything was absolutely to her standards. And she just said, look, it's it's my name on the door. So, you know, until it's not, I'm absolutely going to be going through everything and making sure that it all comes out the way that I want. You know, when when you are you're the talent, you're the your it's your brand, your name. I mean, I guess this is so important. But that leads me to the question then, you know. How do you how do you grow? Are you are you looking to expand through hiring or working with other partners on development of other types of content? Yeah. So the way I've decided to try to grow my business is twofold. Um, one is I've started kind of branching out to make television shows for other talent. So um, obviously, I've 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 produced and directed all my own shows, you know, thus far, and mm-hmm. I've built up a lot of broadcast partnerships all around the world, and and I I'm able now to kind of identify other talent and say, hey, let's let's make a show for you, um, mm-hmm. and I, I'll produce it, and we'll come up with the idea, and and I'll have my team, you know, do the production and post production. And we'll um, and we'll use this as a vehicle for whoever that other talent is, and um, and then I can kind of you know sit back and maybe not have to spend you know eight months filming around the world and Which, and let let that other you know let those other people kind of play that process out. So that's one step. 
Great. Yeah, I, w- and, I, w- I was going to ask you actually because you said that you're, you're travelling 300 days a year and I was going to ask, does it just get tiring sometimes? You, you know, and it sounds like you've got, a, you've got a plan anyway to move it into something else but uh, do you well, just wake up some days and think, oh, God, I'm doing this again? No, I mean, uh, I'll come back to the travel in a sec. Okay. okay. So the the first the first uh, the first way to expand is making te- television shows for other people, mm-hmm. and the and the other way um, that I've started expanding is is maybe investing in other entertainment you know um, opportunities like feature films or maybe writing right. scripts and mm-hmm. taking some experiences of travel and some experiences that I've had with people in remote places and in other countries and trying to formulate. Um, you know, feature film opportunities from that, where mm. where that might be the next you know stage for where I go with regards to writing and storytelling and things like that, and and hopefully you know I can pursue those options not as an actor but but as mm. someone who can help craft a story and maybe even direct someday, um, and uh, and I can also keep kind of making my show, which allows me to to travel around the world, mm. and then with mm. regards to traveling. Um, I'm kind of insane. Like I love meeting new people Mm. and that's, that's part of why I like making my television show. And I hope that, you know, the audiences can see my genuine enthusiasm for being in new places and meeting new people because I, I just love it. And, um, and, you know, I can, I can land, you know, somewhere at 5am after flying all night and and go straight into a breakfast with someone new and, and I'm the happiest person in the world. And because I know that every person I meet is going to, you know, be someone that I can collaborate with or someone that can help me tell my next story. And yeah. that, that person deserves my energy and my time until we can figure out if, you know, there's something we can do to, to collaborate on. So I, I try to be, you know, I try to go out of my way to do a lot of networking. Uh, most of it now is outside of China, uh, mm. which is why uh, I do so much traveling. And, and uh, yeah, it's exciting. And, and I do a lot of speaking engagements as well. Right. And that's the best because then you get to take these experiences you've had in China or Uganda mm. or Iceland or where at Russia, and then you get to bring them to a live audience of you know a couple hundred people, and you know maybe it's the you know Royal Geographical Society in Hong Kong or Asia Society mm. or or the Explorers Club in New York, and then you get to you know you get to share that enthusiasm and that passion and show people the amazing footage that you're able to collect and the and the stories that you're able to tell, and then shake hands afterwards and have people mm. you know get get real in the moment feedback on what you're doing and yeah. the kinds of stories you're trying to tell. And this for me is the the greatest thing in the world. And I try to do like 30 to 50 uh, events a year. So that also keeps me traveling quite a bit. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, fantastic. And I just want to ask that, you know, you mentioned before about one of the reasons that you started this was because the narrative about China was not what you were experiencing what about now? Do you think that narrative has changed? I think, um, you know, everyone's calling, everyone's saying like now is the golden age of television, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. But actually what they should be saying is like now is the golden age of scripted television with celebrities. You know, we're getting all this great Netflix content and Amazon Prime content, but Mm. it already has, you know, built-in celebrities and they, and that everything's, you know, written by directors and, and famous writers and, and it's all really high quality. And I think at the same time, what we're seeing is a complete destruction of nonfiction, um, sorry, of, of, um, of nonfiction, like, um, entertainment or nonfiction television, unscripted television. And what's happening is, is that uh, you're getting really low quality shows 
with, in some cases, really low quality talent. Um, and a lot of it is so funded by corporations or even governments. And do you mean uh, more like reality TV shows? Is that what you're talking about there? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah more reality TV mm. or... Um, I just feel like the, obviously the reality TV world is really bleak in my mind. Yeah. Uh, even though the ratings are so high, um, but it's sort of you know, common denominator type people and stories, and certainly doesn't feel like it's contributing anything to moving the world forward. Right. Or, mm. or if you take a major broadcaster in Asia, for example, mm. uh, and they want to make a television show, a travel show, you know, they won't spend any money unless they can get maybe a government partner to come in and then the government partner wants to shape that mm. whole story and then it ends up being, you know, soft advertising or a commercial. Like a and, bureau, you mean? Yeah, yeah and that's, yeah. Not, that's not what we're going for either. And, and I started mm. to see all this happening and I was like, man, I need to carve out something for myself here because if, I, if I'm just a talking head in these other shows – um, I might get way more exposure, and people might know my name because mm. I'm in these in these shows. But I won't feel I won't feel good at the end of the day. I won't, you know, I don't. I might not want to work 16 hours a day if I'm involved in stuff like that because yeah. I think it'd be really um, time consuming and and really maybe not not what I wanted to do, you know, with my life. So mm. I've I made that conscious decision kind of really early, and I've only done one show like that. Um, for I won't name the broadcaster, but mm-hmm. I did a show that was funded by a government partner, uh, which was talking about uh, a certain location in Asia and how it was developing and becoming, um, you know, kind of an economic powerhouse in some ways. And right. it just it just didn't leave me feeling too happy at the end of the day. So I was really keen to to branch out. And what I've been able to do now is I've been able to make my own shows and get them on those same broadcasters, telling my own story. So in some ways. You know, I, I I might have I've succeeded in some ways of trying to develop my own brand. Mm, mm. And so then, how do you work with brands? Then just picking up on this thread of uh, working with partners and and how they uh, may or may not influence the content. How how do you work with them on this and sort of let them know where's the line? Yeah, so it's very delicate. Um, every partner is totally different, and it's really important that that they have goals that they want met and I have goals that I want met. And, and as long as we both agree from the very beginning that what I'm doing has its own built-in audience that, and that's not going to change, then, then the idea is what can you bring to the table? Mm-hmm. So I might work with a corporate partner uh, whose clothes I wear in the show. And, and I'm not going to talk about the clothes at all. Mm. I'm not going to say, man, mm. I'm so glad I've got this jacket today because this new jacket by blah, blah, blah keeps yep. me warm. I'm not, that's not the show. Um, but, but the logo will be there and people will know that the jacket or the, or the clothing is tough because I'm doing tough things. Yep. And, and then, of course, part of that deal is I'll share pictures and social media things and maybe I'll do some events with them in their stores or maybe corporate events with them. And maybe I'll wear some of their clothing when I'm doing other events in other parts of the world. Uh, maybe we'll do some marketing together. Maybe we'll do some advertising together. You know, mm, those, mm. those things are all part of it because a lot of these big companies, you know, they're doing amazing things, but, uh, but they, they don't have people to tell their story. Yeah, and and yep. what I try to do is position myself as also a, a, a storyteller for brands. Like, you know, look at what this company is doing, and look at how it helps me do what I need to do. And as long as it's authentic and not a stretch, 
and I don't have to talk about it in my show, which mm. isn't the place to talk about it at all. Um, but when I'm off the show, I'll talk about it, you know, all the time because I'm proud to be, you know, connected with these partners or I'm proud that, you know, to have this kind of support. So that's, that's no problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's, it's very delicate. Um, and, and the hard part is a lot of these big companies, they, they have a lot of turnover. Mm, mm. So turnover is the big is the biggest problem I face, both at broadcasters and at, at corporate partners. Because right, right. you'll meet you'll meet a CEO or a chief marketing officer, you'll get along, you'll mm. put together a deal, and then all of a sudden they'll quit, and then the person who comes in next doesn't like you, mm. and doesn't believe in it, and then it gets done, and that you know that could be like a six figure deal. Um, yeah, right. It, just, well, it wasn't their idea; it was their predecessor's idea. And right. yeah, absolutely. Yep. And people are, especially in Asia, I feel, I feel like people in Asia are changing jobs every two years. Um, yeah. And you know what? It takes me two years to make one of my shows. I have to come up with the idea. I have to put together the deck. I have to mm. spend six months doing pre-production and fundraising. Then I go out and I make eight episodes, which takes eight or ten months. And then I do, and then you know, it takes like six to six to eight months to do all the post-production. Mm. So my business cycle is a two-year business cycle. Right, yeah. Um, which also happens to be the same the same career cycle as a lot of top executives in Asia, and it's become a real problem. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think maybe the only positive thing that I've seen in, in this front is that at least people are still moving within, uh, they're either within the industry or they're still within the region, so at least then you have a relationship that might continue at another business partner. Uh, that's whether, true. whether that's just the right fit for you or not is, a, is another thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I, I think uh, I mean that's really interesting. Uh, you know that how you manage that relationship with brands. We see this a lot as well. You know, we work with a lot of brands and helping them advise them on how they do their influencer marketing, particularly. And uh, you know, just consumers just have a bullshit meter. You know, they just they can see through this stuff. They don't want to be sold to in the way that some brand owners still think they they should be working with them. So I think you're absolutely right. It's about proving out the value of a product rather than shoving a brand down uh, down someone's throat in a piece of content. It's true. And uh, mm-hmm. and I, you know, and I that's where I'm trying to, you know, television is going to come back. You mm-hmm. know, people are going to want to see authentic people on television doing authentic things and having real experiences. I think that, you know, the whole Kardashian mm-hmm. era and the whole reality TV era is coming to a grinding halt. And people are going to start rejecting, you know, this kind of entertainment. And yeah. I'm hoping that when they do and when the brands realize that, um, that and when they start looking for people who are telling authentic stories and being humble, you know, yeah. humility. Wow, yeah. where did that go? Yeah. Like, imagine, <laughs> yeah. you know, imagine me going to, and this is one of the things that makes my show work really well because it's on BBC right now, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and they're like, wow, it's so nice to have a presenter who goes somewhere and doesn't know everything. Like, you know, and it's, it's great to go to Russia and not know everything about Russia. And then that, that of course sparks the conversation, the desire to learn the humility, you know, the understanding, um, the, the cultural exchange, like this Mm. is, this is where I want to take my television. Like I, I visit, you know, I film in eight countries a year. I can't be an expert on all eight countries. I'm not reading six books about each country before I go to each country to film. So I have to ask people and I hope that the questions I'm asking are the questions the audience wants to know because I know yeah. the audiences aren't experts in all these different places. So I'm really trying to just be an audience member on the ground in my show. I want to be the vessel or the lens through which the audience gets to learn about this place. And 
Absolutely. And you have to do that yeah. in a humble way because I have no idea what's going on and and I want to meet people and have these great experiences and then, you know, and then we're we're off to the next place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And look, I I love your prediction. I I really hope that you're right that we're moving to a stage where the the likes of the the Kardashians are coming to an end. And I think, you know, certainly, yeah, I think people people want more authentic stories and they do want to see, you know, certainly I, I think the the age of the celebrity is sort of dying out a little bit as well. Uh, people want to see real people doing real things. Yeah, and if you can emerge, you know, and if you can emerge as someone who can do that, and someone who has, you know, I have a very, I'm very fortunate. I have a, a large social media following mm. on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Weibo in China, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, I think a lot of people have gravitated to to my style of storytelling and and the way I conduct myself, both on camera and off, mm. and and I hope that you know people trust me. Like when I go somewhere, when I talk about things. Um, you know, they can see a familiar face and know that, you know, I'm going to speak honestly and, and also, mm. you know, be a, be a, a humble observer or a conscientious observer where, you know, I'm not trying to push the, I'm not trying to push the, the story forward or push my agenda or, on people. Particular or, narrative. Yeah. 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 Or try to change. Mm. Like, you know, I think the first thing you have to decide if you're going to be a world traveler or if you're going to make these kinds of shows is, are you going to go into a country or into a situation as a change maker mm. or as an observer? And and I've never really been a change maker. And a lot of people, you know, they say, oh, this, this country needs to change its government or this country mm. needs to change the way it deals with women or deal the, deal the you know, something with mm. education. Mm. But I'm not that person. And I think that's part of my you know, my journalism experience where I'm on the ground and I'm learning about what's happening and then I convey the information as best I can. I try to get some different points of view on the topic and then I let the audience decide. Mm, and, mm. and maybe I have my own opinions and maybe I, I'm slanted a little bit one way or the other, but I try not to be too overwhelming in this, in this idea because, because I don't want to come across as, you know, I don't want to alienate maybe half my audience. Um, I want them to kind of see what I'm going through and then kind of come to their own conclusions. Mm, mm. Yeah. Okay. Really. Yeah. That's really interesting. And then from that, then what are you working on now? What's the, what's next? So we just finished filming season three of Extreme Trek. So season two just came out on BBC Earth, and we just wrapped up filming season three. We were in Russia, Iceland, Laos, Papua New Guinea, Bolivia, Argentina, Jordan, and Uganda. And I just got back from Uganda a couple weeks ago. So now we're deep in post-production on that. So I've got my guys editing and putting together the maps and the graphics, and we're doing that on a daily basis. And then at the same time, I'm working with... um, Bernard Schreiber, who is my kind of, he's in charge of all my corporate partnerships. And I work with a lot of people. I don't think people should get the assumption like I, mm. I have a, like I have a manager and I have an agent and I have people who help me package things mm-hmm. and present them in the right way. And then when I'm off filming in Uganda, there's a contact point for that company to, you know, to reach out and communicate with me if I'm not available. So I, I work with Bernard and he, he's based in Zurich and he helps me, um, you know, put together a lot of the corporate funding. And, and, um, so we're now entering a fundraising period. So for the next six months, we'll be reaching out to corporate partners, trying to restructure a new deal that might've expired or, or put together something new altogether so that we can start filming season four of extreme treks in January. Right. Fantastic. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with the funding round. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing the, the new series come out. 
Uh, wonderful speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I know that you're incredibly busy and that you're always on the go. So I'm really glad to have just grabbed your time while you're uh, you're back in Shanghai today. And uh, best of luck. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. It was a really wonderful uh, experience and best of luck with the podcast. Yeah, great. Thanks. See you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.